So with that, let's prepare our hearts to hear from the revelation of God and stand for a reading of the Holy Gospel according to Luke, chapters 1, verses 1 to 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great among the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of, his, of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning again, Westside. We're glad that you're here um, as we continue in the second Sunday of Advent. And maybe this is all new to you, some of the language, the wording. Um, Advent just simply means the coming or the arrival of. And so you could even hear and read an article, the arrival or the advent of the television or the internet or those type of things. And what we see traditionally in church history is we celebrate this time of year. We stop, slow down, we um, sort of rail against the busyness of the culture and we stop and we say that we are preparing for the coming and the arrival of Jesus Christ. And this starts what is known as the church calendar, which leads us all the way past Easter and it revolves all around Jesus Christ. 
And so during this season, we're going to be walking through these different avenues of Jesus's life. And it's incredible because here at Westside, we believe that it's all about Jesus. But Advent does kind of three things, and you've heard this. What we do is we look back to see what God has done. And so we look back on all of these promises that God has made, but we also look around to see what God is doing in the here and now. But then we live in this sort of angst of that Jesus is coming again. And so we look forward in hopes of what he will do. And during this Advent season, we have found a word in the scriptures that God likes to use when communicating something to us. Um, most of the time he uses this word to either do one of two things, to show you what he has just done or to let you know that he's getting ready to do something. That word is used one th over 1,000 times in the ESV Bible, and it is the word behold. Behold, which means like get ready, step back, open up the eyes of your heart, and let's see what's about to take place. And so we looked at and sort of outlined the story of the Bible last week with this idea of behold. And at the end of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, God has a behold. We read it last week. And, and it's these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree and utter destruction. Behold, I'm going to send someone before I send the Savior. And so traditionally on the second Sunday of Advent, we, we celebrate and look at John the baptizer, Jesus' weird, crazy cousin, right, who wore like camel's hair and was on the paleo diet before it was ever popular, okay? And last week we said that if the message is behold, um, the message of Advent is behold, God is saying behold, look at what I've either done or I'm going to do, not, not behave. It's behold, not behave. And then we see this week about John the Baptist, it's, it's a promise, behold, I'm getting ready to do something. It's going to happen. And, and maybe this will help as a way of illustration. So um, maybe you're a parent like me, and there's times where my kids ask me something, and uh, just out of sheer convenience, um, I, I agree or I say yes to something that, that they want to do in the future. So for example... Sometimes my kids will ask, Roman and Andy Grace will ask to come up to the church early with me on Sundays because they think it's just a magical time to turn on lights. And they're like, nobody's there. And I'm like, okay. So they want to come and they want to help out and do stuff. But it's inevitable that they always ask in the midst of like the most stressful moment that's happening seven days before Sunday or something like that. So, I mean, they'll ask me like as I'm buckling like Piper into her car seat. And car seats test your salvation, right? <laughs> a car seat lets you know whether you are in the Lord or not of the Lord, okay? And so I'm, in, I'm doing this, and inevitably Roman will be like, hey, Dad, this Sunday, can I come early and help you at church and set up and do all that stuff? And um, out of convenience, okay, I'm, just, I'm confessing here, all right? Any other parents do this? You're, I say, um, yeah, that sounds good. We'll talk about that. Right? I know some of you guys are way better parents than me, and you don't ever promise anything that you can't fulfill. Okay, well, I'm a sinner, and I need Jesus. All right? And I'm about to throw a car seat out of a moving vehicle, right? And so I'm like, yeah. Inevitably, though, they don't ever bring that up for a long time. Until Saturday night, right before I shut the bedroom door after we've just prayed. Roman will go, hey, hey, Dad, hey, Dad. Um, real excited for tomorrow. 
Well, what's tomorrow, bub? I'm going to get to go to church early with you. Oh, yeah, you did the mind ninja thing, right? And, and then I have to say, well, bub, you know, I don't know about this. And then, and then it happens. Inevitably, Roman or Andy will say, but you promised. You said. You, Dad, you said you promised, right? Um, and, and that's tough as a parent because you want to fulfill those promises, but you realize I was on another planet when I made that promise, okay? And, uh, and it you know, causes, we, we want to be promise makers and promise keepers, but, but we're not perfect. Today, when we look at John the Baptist and we see what God promised so long ago, one of the things that, that the scriptures teach us today to behold, we see it there in the passage, behold, it is this truth. Behold, God is a promise maker and God is a promise keeper. God doesn't just make these promises. He, he keeps these promises. You see, the context is, is that there is literally what theologians call 400 years of silence in between that last book of the Bible in the Old Testament, Malachi, and then that blank page, and then the New Testament. There, there is no thus saith the Lord. God is literally said, behold, I'm going to send someone and you're going to know when this is happening. And then there's, there's silence. And then we see that the New Testament opens and then there's a fulfillment of that promise. And so if God is a promise maker and a promise keeper, there are some things in these 25 verses that Luke has for us that we are to behold these promises with. And the first one is this. We can behold with certainty. Behold with certainty. Now, that's not a word that I would have used, but um, it's a word that Luke uses. You see, look right there in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you were taught. So here's the deal. We're going to be in Luke's gospel for a long time as we're following the life of Jesus. And Luke is sort of like an investigative journalist, if you will. Luke is an eye, uh, follows around with the Apostle Paul and goes around and interviews eyewitnesses. He authors the gospel of Luke and then the sequel, also the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so he goes around, he's funded by this guy, Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus. We know that he had some money, right? Because he funded Luke to go around and give eyewitness um, interviews for those things. So we forget this when we read these stories. But Luke interviewed Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, right? Like, imagine Luke interviewing Elizabeth. Like, hey, Elizabeth, so your husband was silent, for about nine months, right? And she's like, praise the Lord, he was, right? I mean, so like there's these interviews that are happening and taking place. And, and Luke says that he puts together an orderly account, and in verse 1, to undertake and compile a narrative. I love that word, narrative. An orderly account. So Luke is a physician by trade. That's why he focuses on Jesus' miracles and gives very um, apt details about locations and this, that, and the other. Um, some theologians think that he was maybe a musician because he records the carols, um, the Christmas carols that we call them in Luke 1 and 2. Just a phenomenal investigative journalist, if you will. But he says, hey, Theophilus, I want to give you certainty and I want to give you the right narrative about Jesus. 
And, and there's a great application point for that. Do, do you have the right narrative about Christ? See, see, a lot of times when I spend time either with non-believers or people who are kind of peeking over the fence, and if you, we're so glad that you're here and just checking this thing out, right? But a lot of times when I ask them to tell me about the Jesus they don't believe in or the God they don't believe in, after that explanation, my response is, oh, dude, we're on the same page. Because, like, I don't believe about that God either. You see, it's about the narrative. And, and big questions and big statements require big work. And what Luke is saying is, hey, I want to give you the proper work about this. And so what Luke is saying is, you can trust my gospel account, my biography of Jesus. And, you know, what's interesting about this idea of certainty is when it comes to ancient literature, the word is called attested. So, so, so what guys do is they look at ancient documents and, and they put a number of factors together. I was actually just reading about a very famous person who is a, you know, atheist, outspoken. And one of the things that he says is that unfortunately Christians don't know is actually the attestedness that they have of their own New Testament. But unfortunately they're ignorant of that and they don't know that. And so here's what I mean by this. Here's, here's a chart, okay? And so in this chart, what this looks like is... And the chart, there it is. That was, whoa, that worked out great. That was incredible, right? So uh, manuscript evidence for the ancient writings. So, so, so let's go with Caesar. I, he's a big deal, right? Learned about him in history class and all that stuff. Um, uh, the documents that we have were written about 100 to 44 B.C. The earliest fragment is about 900 A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. There's a thousand-year time span between what happened and the documents that we have about Caesar, okay? That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And we have about 10 of those that we can read, right? So that's an attestedness of that. And there's a lot that we don't know about Caesar, and there's a lot that we actually don't know about with Roman history. Um, drop down a little bit. Um, Homer's Iliad, right? You ever read that? If you have trouble sleeping at night, read Homer's Iliad, you will fall fast asleep, okay, all right? Um, Homer's Iliad, 900 B.C., probably one of the most famous ancient stories that we have. Um, the earliest fragment, 400 B.C., that's about a 500-year difference, and we have about 643 um, of those documents, okay? I've never heard, never heard anybody challenge, well, you know, the thing is, we don't really know if Homer wrote the Iliad. No, I've just never heard it before. Then in steps, this thing that we have to deal with, hey, 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 you have to deal with this, um, is, is the New Testament, right? And so when we look at that, um, there's about 40 A.D. to 100 A.D. written, and actually probably a little bit earlier, Mark's Gospel. The earliest copies, probably actually earlier, but this is a great conservative, um, uh, 125 A.D., 25 to 50 year time span in between what happened and when it got written down. Okay, this is massive in ancient writings. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul does like what would be the equivalent of a Facebook tag. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's like, yo, Jesus rose from the dead. And you can go ask Bill, you can go ask Sue, you can go ask these people, and he drops their names. Well, do you know what that means? That means that Caesar or a Roman official or somebody who was in charge could go knock on their door and go, hey, hey, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? It's, it's like tagging them in light of that. And we have an, about 24,000 copies of this that has been passed around and circulated. Dead Sea Scrolls, you can Google all this and look at all this stuff and hold me to these things. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. If you're challenging the narrative of Jesus, 
And if you're challenging the narrative of the New Testament, it's going to take a little bit more than a Joe Rogan podcast to disprove that. Okay? Big questions require big work. And here's what Luke wants to tell you. You can behold with certainty because God's word can be tested and it can be trusted. That's what Luke is telling us. And then he rolls right into some crazy stuff. But I love in his prologue, he's saying, yo, Theophilus, you paid for this. Here's my citation. Here's what I'm doing. You can trust and have the proper narrative about this story. So the promises of God, we can behold with certainty. The second one is this. Um, we can behold them in reality. In reality. Because look what Luke does. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Boom. What does he do? Footnote. Drop it, cite the source, Herod was a real dude, okay? We can look this guy up in history, and Herod was a b -b 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 bad guy, all right? So we're going to have some fun with the Bible. I'm going to say, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, and because I have a microphone and you don't, you're going to say, dun, 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 and we're going to have fun reading the Bible, okay? God forbid we come to church and have fun with the Bible. Here it is. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, so... About this guy, um, Herod was ruling during this time. Um, he was basically like a sellout. He had a lineage of, of Jewish ethnicity, but he sold out to the Roman government. So what he did was, is he wasn't Caesar by any means at all. He was like one of Caesar's little minions, okay? And what he did was, is he ruled a certain town in Caesar's name. He got to live off some of the prophets and do all this stuff. This guy was a Jerry Springer episode, just full on. If you don't believe me, here's a chart of some of his wives. Right? The, did you catch the plural tone there? Okay. Hey, guys, you can't figure out the one wife you got. All right? You don't need four more. Okay? I mean, this guy was strung out all over the place. Um, historians say that it was better to be one of Herod's pets than one of his own sons because he killed two of them because he was so afraid that they would abdicate and take his throne. Right? Historical reality here. But the promise of God drops into this context. Whew, I love that. The promises of God don't drop into a Thomas Kincaid painting or a Hallmark card. It's not what it looks like. The promises of God get dropped into a real reality here. And then we're introduced to these characters, right? Zechariah and then Elizabeth. It says that Zechariah was from the division of Abijah. So, so he's a priest in the temple. And just quick background. A prophet took words from God and gave them to the people. A priest takes the words of the people and uh, gives them to God. That's the difference. A prophet from God, a priest intercedes on behalf of the people to God. This is a great guy. Just a church guy, pastor, working there in the temple, doing his thing, man. And then um, Elizabeth, she was a daughter of a preacher, man, right? I just love this couple. It says there, Elizabeth, who is the daughter of Aaron, which is from the priesthood. But look how verse 7 starts. But... But they had no child. Huge. Huge. Why is that important? Well, well, for a number of reasons, because of the story and the prophecy of John the Baptist, but also socially. 
um, they would have been sort of ostracized. They, they didn't get the invites to the Christmas parties, and they would have drove by the local sort of restaurant and thought, well, look at all those people from community group hanging out. We didn't get no text. They must be, right? Okay. So because they didn't have kids, and also culturally back then, that also meant that you don't have anybody to take care of you when you get older. It's almost in a way sort of like a death sentence, like your name's not going to live on, none of those things. And the Bible doesn't try to Instagram that. You know, it says that they were blameless in walking in the statutes of the Lord. It doesn't mean they were sinless. It means that they were faithful. They were faithful just serving the Lord, and they didn't have a child. Um, I bet you they prayed a lot for a child, don't you think? And they still didn't have one, but they were still serving the Lord. You see, what I love about this is, here's what I'm trying to say. The Bible doesn't try to hide the harsh realities of life. Actually, um, the promises of God fall on the backdrop of your brokenness. And so if you're trying to hide an addiction or something that you have going on and your marriage isn't actually what you post on Facebook and all of these type of things, and you're trying to hide that and put a front on, on that, what you're actually doing is you are hindering the very avenue that God says, that's the only area and avenue in your life that I'm going to work in. I work in brokenness. That's, that's the whole point. So we don't just behold these promises with certainty that we can trust them, but we behold them in a real reality, in the brokenness now. But then there's this, and we got to deal with it, right? We also have to behold these promises and behold them um, in the supernatural. You're like, uh, Jason, I thought you just said that we could behold in reality, right? I love the tension. I love the tension there. That's what the Bible does. There's a ditch on either side of the road. And some of us have a temptation to go extremely logical and behold within reality. And in the days of Herod, king of Judah, you got charts and graphs. You're the end times people. You got pocket protectors. And you're like, well, the New York Times. And you're just all up in that stuff. Okay, reality. That's great. And then some of us are like, I have a nail in my tire. Satan's trying to attack me. Okay. Uh, you just drove over a nail. That's it. I was sick today coming to church. The devil's trying to keep me away from church. Um, you have the flu, right? You don't wash your hands enough, okay? Right? There's a ditch on either side of the road. And Luke literally says, in the days of Herod, and then now look at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest and the God with his divi uh, division on duty, and then look at this, verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. I love what the Bible does to us. In the days of Herod, anchor that down. Then that time an angel showed up at church. And you're just like, what in the world? Listen, um, this is tough. But the reality is, is that um, there's a tension here. And so we can behold with certainty, but we also behold these promises that are supernatural, that there are times that we believe as Christians that God supersedes the natural, Okay. Now, here's one thing you have to admit. If you disagree with that, you also have to agree that there's things in this world that you cannot explain either. And so I read this, this, this quote this week, and I thought it was great. Listen to this. Christians believe in the virgin birth and other miracles. Materialists believe in the virgin birth of the cosmos. Choose your miracle. Okay? Listen, if, if you're going to challenge something, you also have to admit something. And what Luke is doing is he's saying, look at this narrative and let's compile it here together. 
So Zechariah serving in the temple. This is a picture of what the temple would look like. This is from the ESV Study Bible. Um, Herod decked, I mean, this is like MTV Cribs. Herod decked this thing out with gold, and he actually put his logo on every brick. Like, he was just a narcissist, okay? Oh, but anyway, so where, where Zechariah is, is he's not behind that curtain. Behind that curtain is the Holy of Holies. So we're like, once a year, Yom Kippur, a priest would have a rope tied to his ankle. And because if he went in there and he was not pure, God's going to drop him dead. And we're going to pull that body out and go, well, we need to start the hiring process. We need a new priest. Okay. He's at the altar of incense. The altar of incense has two um, really factors with it. The first one is it's very practical. Here's why. You know what's happening in that temple? Um, Mary had a little lamb is getting its throat slit. I'm just, it's just the Bible, all right? There's sacrifices going on in the temple, and it stinks, and there's a lot of blood everywhere. So they turn on the diffuser, right? You like that? 2019, a little reference there. And the, and the incense fills the temple to cover up sort of the stench of death, if you will. But there's also a spiritual and theological implication that we see all in the scriptures that the incense that rises is a physical picture of our prayers rising to God. That's why in the book of John, John says that he saw the incense as the prayers of the people arose. And so Zechariah is doing his thing, which, by the way, there was about 24,000 priests to choose from. So if you got your number drawn, it was like, woohoo, this is great. There were a lot of guys who lived their whole life and never did this. But God's sovereignty, something's taking place here. And then the angel shows up and then says this, Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I love that. Every time we see an angel or an encounter with God, people fall on their face. And they're like, oh, right? It's not like what people think what it's like. It's, it's actually the Bible changes our view of that. It, people fall down and go, oh, my gosh, don't kill me, okay? So fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Here it is. For your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll rejoice at his birth. So this is, this is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' sketchy cousin, right? Everybody's got a sketchy cousin. You know what I mean? And so this is the, the it's coming true. This is happening. So what is it about this supernatural thing? Well, I want to show you this in verse 8. Look at these words. Now, while he was, what? Oh, you know, serving. I'm a pastor. I'm about to rail on this. You know what I'm saying? While he was serving, something profound happened. Hey, question, question. Um, you coming to this church today and you, you know, checking that off your box? Question. Does you coming to church today or you going to community group or you serving at Breadshed or you being in the nursery or you serving at Kidside? Um, question. Do any of those things uh, make God love you more? Negative. They do not at all. Here's another question. Does you coming to church today and you going to community group and you serving at Breadshed and you going to nursery and you serving in Kidside, are those avenues that can allow you to make you love God more? Yes. And we are begging some of us for God to do the extraordinary. Oh, God, save my marriage. Oh, God, bring my prodigal. Oh, God, do this. Oh, God, do this. And we have not positioned ourselves once to experience the very power of God. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Ordinary obedience always leads to extraordinary opportunity. And some of us in this room have been attending the gathering at Westside for years. 
and you have never once served in any capacity. And listen, I love you, and you can get mad and leave, but that's not okay. It's not okay. Because through these avenues, we see that God uses ordinary means. Zechariah is just like, you know, just a normal day here, lighting the incense. He probably does like a national prayer, like God send the Messiah, save your people. And he probably says... And me and my wife would love a baby. I love a baby. And he lights that incense and he looks up and he's like, what? It's just the ordinary process that God's doing these things. Do you know what else is supernatural in this passage? Um, the fact that God answers prayer. Hello, anybody a fan of that? Anybody excited today about that? The angel says, Zechariah, your prayer's been answered. How does God answer prayer? I mean, we've taught this before. Yes, no, not yet. That's what I see in Scripture. Yes, no, and not yet. And, and look at me. Everybody in this room's maturity is gauged about how you react to the last two, not the first one. How do you react when the prayer has not come true or happened? That's, that's a gauge for us. Or the waiting. The waiting. Because most of the time when we wait, it's tense and, and we want to turn to things that we can see. It's supernatural that this happens, that God hears our prayers. But it's not just that he uses the ordinary means to do that. I love this. Um, there's something going on in this passage that when the angel describes how John the Baptist's ministry is going to be, look in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You shall call his name John. Now here's John's ministry, verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Do you know what Luke is doing? This is fantastic. John, Jesus said um, that there's been nobody else born among women who's greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. So your bumper sticker about your kid, I'm just saying, all right? Jesus is like, John the Baptist wins. He's the greatest born among women. Jesus said that greater than most. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Do you know what Herod's name was historically? Herod the Great. He made that name himself. Like, can you imagine how much of a narcissist you are? Hey, uh, my name's Herod. Most people call me Herod the Great. Right? I mean, that's unbelievable. But the angel says that that's not the... Here's what I'm saying. God has a different standard of greatness. And what's it measured by? Submission and obedience. Submission and obedience. So listen to me. If you're comparing your marriage to the world's standards and to everybody else's Instagram and your kids and this and we don't and that's not great. Listen, two things. Number one, you will live exhausted, exhausted with that. And number two, it always ends in despair, always. And, and what's the ministry that John's going to do? He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Here it is, verse 17, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. What does that insinuate? That insinuates that naturally fathers' hearts are not turned to their children. And there's a different standard of greatness when it comes to us, man. And there's some of you guys in here who are just grinding it out, man. 
and you're, and you're just tr you're trying to love that woman, you're trying to love those babies, and listen, my word for you today is press on, brother. Press on. Keep, do not give up, man. You are, you are such an... I wish I had a thousand of you here at this church. You were incredible. Keep doing it. Don't give up. And listen to me. Some of us in this room are a joke. And the real ministry is not snapping pictures so the world thinks that I'm a great father. It's doing things that will never be seen. Ever. And the spirit of Elijah in the ministry of Elijah is to come and to confront that. That's a different standard of greatness that God has. Not by the world standards of leaving a wake of dead bodies of relationships behind you, but being quiet and serving in faithful obedience unto the Lord. That's the different standard of greatness that God has. So we're not just beholding this with certainty or in reality. There's a supernatural that's taking place, but this, look at this. Behold the unbelief. Um, it doesn't go well for Zechariah, okay? It doesn't go well because look at his response, Zechariah verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, um, how shall I know this? I'm old. <laughs> I'm old, right? And uh, I'm not just old. My wife's really old, right? I, you know, advanced in years. That's just, it's in the original Greek, okay? Verse 19. And the angel answered him, there's a play on words here in the original language that you can't see it in the English. It more goes like this. Zachariah's response, I'm old. The angel's response, I'm Gabriel. <laughs> Zachariah's response, I'm old. So's my wife. The angel, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Okay? Like that's a pretty big deal. And then the difference here is that Zachariah says, verse 20, and behold, there, there's our word, Behold, you will be silent, the angel says, and, una and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words. Now, there's a difference in Zachariah's response to the angel and Mary's response that we'll see in a couple weeks. You know what Mary asks? Uh, I'm a virgin. This is awkward. <laughs> and then she asks this question. How's this going to be? Zachariah, listen. Mary requested just a little bit more of an explanation. How's this going to happen? And then Holy Spirit will come, overshadow you, all of that. Zechariah doesn't ask for an explanation. He asks for more evidence. That's the problem. And imagine this. You're in church. You're in church. And you're praying for something in church. And an angel appears and says, what you're praying for is going to happen. And your response is, no, nah, I just don't really. <laughs> when I read that this week, I thought, that's me. That, that's us. Let us not be what C.S. Lewis says, have chronological snobbery and look back upon those people and say, look at those ancient people. They doubted the very promises of God. We doubt, you know what uh, A.W. Tozer says? He says that Christians don't so much tell lies as much as they sing them. Meaning, we don't even believe the words that we sing. I mean, I mean, this is our life, right? And what would actually happen? What would actually happen if God did answer our prayers? Right? Like, everything's going to change. And we don't ever think about that. Um, that one famous theologian, oh, what's his name? That one famous theologian, Garth Brooks, he has a song about this, right? 
right? Just the other night. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to. At the hometown game, right? We ran into that old high school flan. Thank God for unanswered prayers. You see, we're so focused on what we want and what we're asking that we have no idea that God is doing a million things that we are entirely unaware of. And then the moment that what we've been begging God for happens, we critique the promise. I hear it all the time. Oh, Lord, let my husband lead me and make him into a man of God and change that passivity. And then your husband starts to lead you and you're like, oh, what are you trying to do, big buddy? You trying to lead this family or something? Who do you think you, right? It's unbelievable what we do. And here's here's the real reality. There's so much grace in this passage, but it's this. God is more willing to answer our prayers than we are even willing to believe his promises. That's how far above and beyond all of this is. And there's a level of us that we have to admit and confess that real reality of brokenness that, God, I'm not even sure if I really even believe this or even what you're doing now. And then the last thing that I want us to point out is this. Behold the grace, the grace. Look at what happens after all of these things take place. Zechariah's mute. This is incredible. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, like, Elizabeth is so not 2019. Can you imagine a girl doing this today? I mean, that social media, Snapchat, and Instagram is blowing up, right? I mean, talk about a birth announcement, right? Like, I was barren, but now I'm not. And then an angel came. But she was just quiet, just kept to herself in verse 25. Thus, the Lord has done for me in these days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Why did she say that? Reproach. Literally, shame. Shame. God has taken away my shame. Did you know that that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That Jesus hung naked and shamed so that we could be covered and unashamed. And some of us are so riddled with our guilt and our shame. And the good news is that God's grace. Do you know what John's name means? It's in the passage. John's name means the grace of God. How incredible is that? That God literally gives grace. And this is how we define grace, right? Grace is an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. That's what grace is. It's unearned. You could do nothing to earn this. And by the way, God is very unobligated to do this for you. And that's what we don't like to focus on because we demand our rights. We love rights. We're all about rights. We have a whole bill that talks about them, right? And when we stand before Calvary and that bloody cross, we have none of them. None. Grace is an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. And listen, God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. The promise came true. But how old were they? We don't know. Just really, really old, right? How much did they pray? We don't know. And it almost seemed like for a while for Zechariah and Elizabeth that God had denied what they were asking for. But please listen to me. I learned this years ago from another preacher. This is not my sentence, but it has helped me, and it's this. God's delay 
is never his denial. Never. So don't give up. And don't lose heart because we're so focused on God answering the prayer and God is much more concerned about the person that you are becoming. That's God's main focus is shaping you and molding you into the image of Christ. And most of the time that happens in waiting. And the whole storyline of the Bible is waiting. And we actually have the whole storyline of the Bible right here with these three characters' names. Do you know what Elizabeth's name means? It means the promise of Yahweh, the promise of God. Do you know what Zechariah's name means? Yahweh remembers. And then John's name means the grace of Yahweh. That is the very storyline of the Bible, that sin entered the world and fractured everything that we knew. God made a promise. All through the Old Testament, the prophets, their whole job is to keep pressing on. God remembers. God's going to send someone. God remembers. And then the New Testament opens up with the very grace of God. Listen to me. Behold, behold. Stop. It's not behave, but behold. God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So I have three questions for us in closing for application. The first one is this. Do you have the right narrative about Jesus Everybody has a narrative. Fox News has a narrative. CNN has a narrative. Everybody, Facebook has a narrative. So everybody has a narrative. They are trying to tell you a story, and that story is how the world works and the lens in which we view the world. And my question to you is what Advent reminds us of is it jars us almost awake, almost like we're watching a movie and it cuts and changes to something completely different, that the narrative of the world is a lie. And many of us still believe that lie. The second question is this. Are you trying to hide the harsh realities of your life? Do you, you, you don't go to community group or you don't serve or you're not involved because I, I cannot let anyone know because the greatest fear is, is if I'm fully known, I won't be fully loved. If people really know me, then people will not really love me. And listen to me, you are blocking the very grace and the avenue in which God has promised to work. You can't hide those areas of your life. And if you do, what you're going to find is one day your heart will be cold and dead because you've hid it away from any sort of risk in any sort of relationship. The beautiful promise of all of this is that it comes on the backdrop of brokenness. And then the last thing is this. What promises of God do you say that you believe but live as if you don't? Jesus is enough, but the affair and the adulterous relationship and the addiction and the lies and the stealing, I need these two. I need these two. You know, I say that I believe that I'm working and preaching so one day that I'll hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. And there's times where I value the approval of you sitting in that pew more than I do the approval of Christ. It is a thorn in my flesh. And what I have to admit is I have to come before God and go, I still have these idols. And what he does is he gets grace and that grace smashes those idols. And he says, it's far better than anything else you could ask or think. Behold, 
God is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. Westside, let us stand to our feet and all through this season of the incarnation of God becoming a man, we declare that this is a profound mystery for us, that there's a level of it that's supernatural that we can't even explain. So before we come to the table, we wanna do what the early church has done, which is proclaim that mystery of faith. So I'll say, Westside, let us proclaim the mystery of faith and then we will lift our voice and say these words out loud together. So Westside, let us proclaim the mysteries of the faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let us lift our voice and pray how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we just behold. It's such good news. The angel Gabriel says, I have good news. And it's not behave, it's behold, God's doing something. So God, I pray that there's some narratives in here. There's, there's a worldview and a story that some of us believe in this room and it is a lie from the enemy. And I pray that the light and the truth of grace would pierce the darkness as we light these candles. And that the light of Christ would shine bright in its fullness of truth. God, I pray that, that we would realize that we don't have to hide the harsh realities of our life. That, that the first thing that Elizabeth confesses is that God has taken away my shame. I pray that that would be true today for some of us. And God, I pray for every one of us in the room for we confess with our lips the promises that we say that we believe, but our lives, our lives live in direct opposition to that. We have not fully loved you as we should, but the good news is that you've never turned away from us. So Holy Spirit, have your way with us and move in this place. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ.